We're going to be at the end of the book of Judges today, as I mentioned earlier, right near the end of it, right before you get to the book of Ruth. So I would love for you to join me there in that text. It's good to see you today. Hope you're doing well. Hope you've had a good weekend. Beautiful spring weather. Cooled off a little bit this morning, it seems like, but a beautiful weekend. And uh, I'm glad we get to be here together this morning to worship. I hesitated over this sermon a bit. And some of the things that happen in Judges 19, 20, and 21, in fact, most of the things that happen in those three chapters, I'm not going to mention out loud in this setting. Um, there are some ugly things that happen. If you've, if you've been reading, you, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been reading, which is fine, uh, go back and read it. Maybe don't read it right now, but read it, read it this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow or something. Um, and and this is, some of this will make more sense to you because this is some ugly stuff, I mean, for real. Judges, Judges 19 is, I mean, if, if, I were, if I were picking the worst chapter in the Bible, Judges 19 might, might be number one. Um, it'd be right up there. It'd have to be. It's ugly. It's bad. It involves marital separation followed by rape. Well, I'm not even going to talk about the rest of it. It's ugly. It's bad. What happens? What happens when, when people decide there are no barriers to doing what they want to do? What happens when people decide that there is nothing that they cannot do that they want to do? That there's, there's, there, there are no inhibitions. There's no God what happens when people say in their minds that there is no God who's going to judge me for doing whatever I want to do? What, what happens when people do that? Judges 19 happens. In fact, Judges 1 through 21 happen. That's, that's pretty much it. Judges is a discouraging book. Now, I don't know if that's a great introduction to a sermon or not, but I think we need to say what is, you know? And this is, this is ugly. This is, this is bad stuff. Now, we know... And you know that the gospel story ends on an upbeat. You know, this is an upward trajectory kind of life that we're living. But that doesn't mean it's all good, right? And the Bible is that way. You've got everything starting out really good in Genesis 1 and 2. But then quickly everything goes south in Genesis 3. But from then on, yeah, there, there are down moments. But from then on, God is siding towards something. There's this upward trajectory where it's going. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us that. That this is where God is going. A new heaven and a new earth where everything is as it ought to be and as it once was. And so in the middle of that story though you have moments like this. And this is fascinating and I hope it will be helpful to us as a church and maybe helpful to us individually as well as we think about what this looks like. We'll apply this to our world. We'll look at it concerning a little bit at least to our nation and We'll, we'll go where I think it probably ought to go mostly, and that is to us. And Think about what God is trying to teach us in a story like this. Now, we're going to read a few verses, and I'd love for you to look at them in your Bible. I'm actually going to put them on the screen, but Judges 17 and verse 6, In those days... There was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, we read that a few minutes ago, right? Judges 17, 6. We'll look at Judges 21, 25 in just a second. But look at this one. Look at Judges 18 and verse 1. The very next chapter, so Judges 17, verse 6. Judges 18 and verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking, was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in and so on. Look in Judges 19 and verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. And then we come to the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. And there, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, you just read this as a piece of literature. All right? we, we believe and are convinced that this is the inspired word of God. right? But you read this just as a, just as a piece of literature. And what you'll find is a lot of clues here in the text that the narrator is telling a story. It's a true story, but he's telling a story. And he's framing this in a certain way so that we might glean some very important lessons. And so you look at this as he flows. He's, he's talking about all these judges. If you've been reading along, you know some of these stories. People like Samson. Samson's not a hero, by the way. Is the story of Samson? People like Ehud. Gideon. And these are great stories. I mean, they're fascinating stories, but with the exception of maybe two, Deborah and Othniel, you don't have any heroes in the book of Judges. This is a bad book, all right? This is a book of, of people who are, who are manipulative and they're just doing what they can do of their own power to, to try to salvage certain situations. So it's, so it's an ugly thing. You get to the end of it, okay? You get to the end of it. So a lot of stories in the book of Judges. Lots of stories. Mostly bad ones. And then he says in Judges 17, 6, as he points to the end of his book, in those days there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One chapter later, in those days there was no king in Israel. One chapter later, 19, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Did, did, you, did you miss it the first three, three times I said it? In those days there was what? No king in Israel. What happens when there's no king in Israel? What happens when there's no accountability? What happens when you can do whatever you want to do? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it is an ugly, ugly thing. Now, I want to try to summarize, for the most part, what happens in Judges. Um, and, and especially what happens in the last three chapters of Judges. Which, in many ways, in fact, I wanted to point this out to you. You, you got your Bible there? Look, look at Judges 19. I want to point out something that you may or may not have noticed in your reading. But in, in Judges 1 through 18, you got a lot of stories. you got a lot of names, a lot of people mentioned, a lot, of, a lot of judges or deliverers, a lot of specific situations. And then you come to the last three chapters of the book, and the, and the narrator tells, the author tells, a fascinating, discouraging, awful story in Judges 19. But he does not tell us, whom he's talking about. In Judges 19.1, in those days there was no king in Israel and there was a certain Levite. Now, who was, what was the Levite's name? This is completely different from the author's pattern of writing. He's been telling us name after name after name after name. But he gets to Judges 19 and he says there's no king in Israel and here's what you got. You got this certain Levite. Now, it's important for us to recognize that he's intentionally choosing not to 
not to tell a name here. And I'll come back to that in a second as to why I think that is the case, that he's not telling us a name. But, but not only is he not telling us a name, but he's telling us that he is a what? He is a Levite. A Levite was, a, was supposed to be a leader of the people. A Levite was supposed to be a religious man who was responsible in part for the ethical, moral, and biblical training of the people. That's what a Levite was. He was responsible in small part the Levites themselves and the priests were responsible for the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. And so you got a certain Levite. Well, he's going to tell a story about a Levite. He had a concubine. They were having marital problems. She left him. She went back to her father's house. He went and tried to win her back. And after a period of time, uh, he, he, he took her and, and went back. And awful things, awful things happened. She was abused, mistreated, raped. Ugly, ugly situation. And, and her name is not given, by the way, in Judges 19. Her name's not given. The Levite's name's not given. The father's name's not given. Nobody's name, for the most part, is given in Judges 19. And the narrator, when he gets to Judges 19, he has changed his pattern. He's been giving us name after name after name. But when he comes to this story that he, that he narrates in all of its glory to tell, he doesn't tell us any names. And, and I think what we're supposed to take from that is that this is supposed to represent all of Israel. Now it's a specific Levite and a specific woman, but it's supposed to represent not a name, not a person, but rather the nation of Israel. Judges 19 and all of its ugliness is what Israel had become. What was right in his own eyes? What happens as was on the previous slide, is Israel had become Canaanized. You remember in your reading or in your study of the Bible, a lot of warnings specifically in the book of Deuteronomy about what would happen when Israel came into Canaan. God had warned them again and again. He said, you're going to go into the land and there are going to be people groups there, people groups who are idolaters and pagans. They don't believe in Yahweh. They believe in multiple gods. They worship those gods in all sorts of awful, sinful Awful, just, just terrible ways. You're going to get there, and your temptation is going to be to become like Canaan. You're, you're, what you're going to be tempted, the, the, greatest, the greatest barrier to your keeping the covenant is that these people groups, these Canaanites, the people living in Canaan, are going to conform you to their own lifestyles. That was the warning. Over and over and over again. This is going to happen to you when you get to Israel, when you get to Canaan. What we read in Judges is that Israel, the nation of God, God's people had become Canaan. They had become Canaanized. They had become like all those other nations. That's what Judges tells us. I mean, we get to the end of Joshua, and it, I mean, we're excited. If we don't know how this is going to go, we're excited because we think, man, they got to the land. They have, they have taken residence in the land. God has been promising this land forever. And now they get there, and everything is going to go great, right? And then we turn to the book of Judges. And Israel becomes Canaanized. And what does it look like when people do not have the moral inhibitions that are associated with belief in a divine judge? There are three things. Actually, we could talk about <clears throat> lots of them, I suppose. But here are three. I may mention four. <coughs> what does it look like when people don't believe in God anymore? There is an abuse of power. <clears throat> Again, without going into the details of Judges 19 and 20 and 21, you've got um, 
just some things, some awful things happen, but you have, particularly in Judges 19, 20, and 21, you have some awful abuses of patriarchy. You have men in positions of power, and they take advantage of women in ways that are almost unspeakable. In fact, so much so that we're not going to read this chapter out loud here. Men in positions of power who treat women as if they are nothing more than just objects. Objects for their satisfaction, objects for their pleasure. They treat them however they want to treat them. They manipulate them. That's what happens in the last part. And, and as, as you've got this building to this climactic moment of a nation that has become canonized, a nation of Israel, the nation of God that has become godless, what you've got in the last three chapters is the epitome of godlessness. Men taking advantage of their position and their power to abuse women. It's an ugly thing. I want to I want to mention here just just a word <clears throat> we could maybe make some application make more application than this but isn't it the case isn't it interesting that in our own country in in the world and certainly the history of the world and even in our own country we see that oftentimes when people are in positions of power they behave poorly you ever notice that? When people are given absolute power to do whatever they want to do, they do not typically, they do not act well. That's true every epoch of history, I believe. Men in positions of power without checks, without the fear of retribution, will not behave And I know there are things that have happened in the last, I don't know, it seems in the last five years with the, uh, with the revelation of all sorts of sordid acts of men in power. Hasn't that reminded us? As more and more women have come forward in the last few years saying that I too, me too, that I too have been sexually abused. Isn't it interesting? This is what happens when people turn away from God, when people believe there is no God, or they act as if there is no God. They believe there's no ultimate accountability. People act very badly. There's an abuse of power, and certainly you see it in the male-female dynamic in history. You see it here in Judges. You see it in our own country. You see it in other ways as well. You certainly see it ethnically, don't you? You see that those in positions of power often mistreat those who aren't. And sometimes it's along gender lines, sometimes it's along ethnic lines, but people do what they did. Maybe it shouldn't surprise us, you know, when this happens. When there's no king in Israel, people do what they can do. They do whatever they want to do. They do what they're going to do because there is no judge who's going to hold them accountable ultimately for their actions. That's what you got in Judges. That's what you got. These people weren't people of God. Sometimes they gave God lip service, and you see, in fact, that in chapter 20, 21. They gave God lip service. They, they pretend that they're trying to please God in some sense. They, they, they try to rubber, you know, stamp some things with the name of God. It's, it's just, 
It's just an ugly thing, an abuse of power. It happens over and over and over again. You get a disregard for life. There's a story in Judges 19 about this man's concubine, his wife. doesn't treat her as any good man treats his wife. And if you haven't read it, all right, please read this. All right, read, read Judges 19 later on. There's a scene in that story where this man has such an utter disregard for her life. If you haven't read it yet, I think you'll know it when you get there. Just kind of, he just kind of, well, he opens the door and there she is. And just almost like he just kind of steps over her. Just a disregard for life. A disregard for the sanctity of life. And then what happens in Judges 20? What happens in Judges 21? There's a civil war. And then there are all sorts of other things where just life doesn't matter. And I, I was thinking this week as I was reading this, wow, is there any sense in which the Western world has become that kind of being, that kind of people? Is there any sense in which America has become that kind of people where there's a disregard for life? And I think, about, I think about the killing of unborn babies. And I think of a nation that turns away from God and, and a nation that doesn't seem to think that there's any kind of reckoning that's coming for those people who disregard life. And I wonder if we're seeing in some sense a replication of the same sort of thing. It's not just an appreciation and value of unborn life, but of, of postborn life. Of, of lives of every ethnicity and every background and every socioeconomic status, of people who turn away from God don't regard life, whether unborn or postborn. They disregard life, maybe if it's different from theirs. There are these, there's these, there are these trends and these tendencies for people who don't believe there's a king in Israel. You know, just a, a disregard for life. You've got blatant selfishness, uh, the, this, this pursuit of self-interest to the exclusion of the interest of those around them. This man, the certain Levite of Judges 19, the, the tribes in Judges 20, they're simply doing what they want to do. They're doing what they need to do in order to accomplish their own ends without the consideration of the needs and the interest of those around them. It's just blatant selfishness. One of the ways it manifests itself, and this, you might, this might be a fourth one or it could be subsumed in these other categories, but is sexual promiscuity. There is the threat of homosexual rape in Judges 19. There's actual heterosexual rape in these last three sections as well, last three chapters. When people turn away from God, one of the ways that it manifests itself is that they don't have any respect for God's sexual standards. For the sacredness of sex between husband and wife within the confines of a man and a woman in marriage. And what you see in the last three chapters of Judges is they don't have any sort of appreciation for that kind of standard. Is it any coincidence that 
in our own country, in our own part of the world, the Western world, we are at a point in history with respect to gender and sexual identity and sexual practices where so many people have lost their bearings and have lost any sense of a standard of right and wrong grounded in the creative pattern of God revealed in Scripture. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. shouldn't surprise us to the extent that people turn their hearts away from God. It manifests itself in all sorts of sexual practices that are inconsistent with the pattern of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. You know? That's what it looks like. This, this, is, this is what happens. You, you look around, I've already done much of this in anticipation of this, but you look around us, you think about, okay, what, what does this mean for us today? And, and I've done some of this already, but I don't want to stop there, and I don't want, I don't want this to be the main thing that you remember. There, there's a sense in which I'm tempted, you're probably tempted, to look around at the world, as I've done this morning, and say, man, this awful world, the abuse of power, men in power, um, this disregard for life, this blatant selfishness, this, this sexual promiscuity and, 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 and a just complete you know, abolition of any kind of sexual boundaries or whatever. And you look at the world, and, you, and, and certainly that, that's a stance that we need to take as a church to make sure that we're being guided by biblical principles and not by our culture, right? And so that we might, for the world, model a commitment to sexual ethics and the proper relationship of men and women and, this, and the value of the sanctity of human life, of all life, right, of all human life. That we in the church, we, we, we show the world to an extent, we show the world that this is where, this is what it looks like when there is a king in Israel. That there's a king in Israel. And as Mark was saying prior to communion this morning, there is a king the King of kings, the Lord of lords who sits on His throne and reigns over His people and we submit to Him and the church is supposed to be an oasis in a world in which there is no king but self. But in the church there is a king. King Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, the King of kings at whose feet we bow and to whom we submit. And the church needs to be careful that we maintain that kind of commitment to the king. You know, but I think as, as far as some sort of a looking around us kind of, kind of moment here, we need to recognize that we too in the church, and by the way, usually when you're thinking about Israel in the Old Testament, the application doesn't need to be to America. It ought to be to the church. And we ought to think, where do we find those kinds of tendencies in the church because some of the principles apply. God has put us here in a pagan world in an environment in which many people have turned away from God. And he said, don't become like the world. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember Romans 12 too. And so one question that we in the church need to ask is this, to what extent have we become canonized? To what extent have we become like the world? Have we marginalized people in the church? Have we disenfranchised people or become complicit in it? Have we, in leadership, 
in churches remain silent when we ought to have spoken? Have we gone along with the world ungodly trends in our culture and allow those trends to creep into the church? Have we become canonized? And I think those are questions that, that, that God would have us to ask as he tells us the story of this awful situation in Israel in, in the last few chapters, really the whole book of the uh, whole, the whole, uh, whole story of the book of Judges. We look around us and we certainly see things going on in the world. And it shouldn't surprise us that the world is worldly, should it? The world's going to be worldly by definition. The world is serving a God that's not Jehovah, not Yahweh. The world is serving a God of self. But we, as a church, need to read these chapters and be, I don't know if scared is the right word. Uh, we, need to be, we need to be awakened. We need to be alert. And we need to recognize that what happened to Israel can happen to the church. We can become conformed. We can refuse to take stands that are unpopular. We can refuse to go against certain cultural trends that are ungodly in hopes that we won't be ostracized for our standing against the current. And so as a church, especially those of us in positions of leadership, we need to ask, to what extent are we allowing the world to shape our priorities in the way that we go about doing the Lord's work? We look around us. What was right in their eyes? You know, in Genesis 3, it's no coincidence, this story's told again and again. In, in some ways, this is the story of the Bible told again and again in a big way at the end. But in Genesis 3, you had Eve and Adam. Specifically, in Genesis 3, first part, it's told about Eve, remember? And it says very clearly, she looked at the fruit. She looked at the fruit. It looked good. It looked good. It looked like it tastes good. And she ate it. And isn't that the story of humanity? Eve was doing what was right in her own eyes. That's what Adam did. That's what Israel's doing. Doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the story of humanity over and over again. And so Judges ends on that down note, man. Judges 21, 25, there was no king in Israel. Every, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You got Ruth, the story that follows. That's a story about this, you know, this kind of moral chaos, this moral anarchy. And, and in the middle of it, you got... Oh, this is important. I'm not going to preach Ruth to you this morning. But if you're reading Ruth, okay, Ruth is a response to Judges. There's no king in Israel. Everybody's doing what was right in his own eyes. But in the middle of this moral anarchy and chaos. What is God doing? Do you remember who Ruth was? Ruth is the one, was she the great-grandmother? I forgot. Great-grandmother? Great-grandmother of David. So in the middle of this moral chaos, what is God doing? God is preserving His remnant to bring about King David. But that's just a nod toward the ultimate king who would come, who would be called the son of David, who would be the ultimate king at whose feet we bow today. So in the middle of the moral chaos of judges, what's, the, what's, the, what's Ruth's answer to that? Where's God? Where's God when it seems like he's silent? 
Ruth tells us God is still working to bring about His King, His ultimate King, that might, who might, give us the answer to all of this moral ambiguity that we find ourselves in so often. So today as Christians, we claim, we can, we claim King Jesus. We claim Him. We do so imperfectly. We do so inadequately so often, but as, as a body of people, we come here today to celebrate the fact that He's called us to be in His, his family. And we come here today co- collectively, corporately, to confess Jesus Christ as our King and as our Lord. If you're here this morning as one who hasn't yet done that as an individual before Him, we invite you to make that confession, make that claim, to submit your life to Him, to, to let Him be your King so that He might reign in Israel. In your life today, we invite you to submit to Him in baptism. He'll wash all your sins away. He will walk with you from now until that final day. That's the promise that God has made us. If you're not a Christian today, we invite you to become one of God's God's children. Maybe you need to come back to Him today because your life has been characterized by rebellion. And you want to once again confess Him as your Lord and Savior. We'll do anything we can to help you. There is a king in Israel. There is a king in Israel. Jesus Christ. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come now. Let's stand. Let's sing.